Today we are studying the eighth lesson in the life of David, the king in the wilderness. Today's story is so strange and weird that I almost tempted to entitle it Pulp Fiction in David's Life. By the way, by Pulp Fiction, I meant I mean the popular literature genre in the mid-20th century in America where racy, colorful detective and crime novels were printed in a cheap quality paper called pulp. The twist and turns of today's story looks more like a sensational pulp fiction than a holy scripture. That's the first impression of today's story. And when I first read it, as some of you might feel soon, the story is strange, and there seems to be not much spiritual stuff in there. Then I ask myself a question. Why in the world did the Holy Spirit inspire this story to be written for God's people and included in the scripture? Because of Romans 15.4, Paul says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have a hope. Now, what encouragement and hope can we find in this biblical pulp fiction? I see God's surprising grace and sovereign truth in the beneath of today's strange and mundane story. Here I see God's truth is not only stranger than fiction, but much more stronger, much stronger than any power or even any story. So with that, let me read the first part of the story. And today, you know, we want to learn three sovereign truths about God's strange truth. Three sovereign, sovereign truths, sovereign truths. Let me, let me, before I read, let me remind you what happened last week. Last week, we saw David's uh, spiritual defection. David somehow compromised his faith and trust in God and took a political exile in the land of a Philistine, the arch enemies of Israel. There, David has a successful life as a double agent until 1 Samuel 28, 1 and 2, the crisis came. So let me read 1 Samuel 28, verse 1 and 2. In those days, Philistines gathered together, gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself that what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. David was called to fight against Israel by Achish, the Philistine king, and king asked him to pay back gratitude and loyalty through this battle. And David has no other choice but to say yes. So he joined the Philistine army as a King Achish bodyguard. And now, now narrator gives us a full detail, a chapter later, chapter 29, verse 1 and 2, and then let me read it for you. The Philistines gather all their forces at Aphek. And Israel camped by the spring in Zezreel. As the Philistines' rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with the Akish. Let me show you the map 
and illustrate this critical battle between Philistine and Israel. By the way, this was not the first time the Philistine fought and Israelite fought at the Valley of Zezreel. In the first Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, Philistines gathered at Aphek, and there they defeated the Israelite, and they even captured the Ark of Covenant. So today, Philistines wanted to repeat the resounding victory over Saul and Israel's army. So Achish mobilized all forces. And then all other Philistine rulers of major cities, such as, do you see in the map, Gaza and Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Gath and Akron. These are the five major cities of Philistine. And even you know, uh, David from Ziklag on the bottom, they all joined together at Aphek. And, and then Saul, he also going from Gibeah, the Saul's headquarters, to all the way to Jezreel, Valley of Jezreel. That's where they are fighting. By the way, Valley of Jezreel is a famous because in the, uh, in the New Testament, we know that valley in different name. The name is Armageddon. Valley of Jezreel is a famous battlefield throughout the centuries because this is most strategic location where three continents meet together, the Europe, Asia, and Africa. They all convert, whoever controls it here, controls this very strategic, lucrative trade route. So all the famous conquerors went through that. All the famous conquerors in the world, except Genghis Khan, they went through there. Yeah, seriously, Alexander Great, Napoleon, and so forth. So Book of Revelation news this place as a final uh, battle of a final place. They call it Armageddon, literally, Hill of Megiddo. It's a Zezreel. It's a valley of a Zezreel. Now, in this massive military mobilization of a Philistine, verse 2 tells us, all the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were marching at the rear with the Akish. There were David and his men at the rear with the king Akish as the, his personal guard. They were about to become a traitors of Israel for good. What do you think they were thinking at the moment? What would you say if you are in the Davis band of brothers? I bet they were silent and asking questions in their heart loudly. Is this real? Is what's happening now is real? Are we really going to fight and kill our own people with these pagan Philistines? Lord David, you must have some contingent plan, right? You still have another hidden card in your sleeve, right? No? Man alive! OMG! This is so surreal. Yes, if there is a one word to describe the crisis of David and his men today, it's a surreal. That's the first sobering, tr sobering truth about our story today. Life is surreal. Life is surreal, especially critical moments and times of life is what Greek people call kairos is always surreal. You know, Webster Dictionary defines surreals in this way. Surreal means, number one, marked by intense, irrational reality of a dream. 
Number two, surreal means having a disorienting, hallucinatory quality of a dream. And number three, synonym is unreal, fantastic. Now, have you had a surreal crisis in your life? I had a few. You know, car accidents are usually surreal. Few years ago, when I was teaching at DVU, and the one winter time, uh, school was closed, but the uh, because of a uh, weather, inclemental weather, and then they decided to reopen in the afternoon. So they asked all the faculty to come, and then at the time, being a naive, you know, uh, novice professor, I just complied to school, and I was driving in Loop Twelve, and. Uh, in this a part of Loop Tail, there is a, a, a bridge, and underneath bridge, in the shadow, there was still some black eyes didn't melt. They was there, and I I remember my car when it was slightly turning right, it turned and they hit the ice and they start spinning. And I crossed the four lanes, and then car stopped. Facing the opposite direction outside of that uh, uh, loop 12. And at the moment, I saw my life literally flashing in slow motion. I was uh, holding the steering wheel for impact, and everything went uh, uh, slow motion. You know, also, some people's, I mean, for me, wedding was uh, surreal. Yes, my wedding was surreal because my pastor preached 45 minutes. And I don't remember anything because I was looking at Jamie so rarely. Seriously, whole 45 minutes, I was thinking, I was looking at this innocent young woman, wondering, does she know what she's getting into? Is she crazy? There are so many eligible Christian men. Does she know what a fake I am? And also, Family funerals are surreal. When I saw my father's deceased cold face at the funeral, it was a surreal and sobering. I realized when I realized that I can't talk to him anymore and he will not answer me back, it was surreal. And also having a heart failure and rushing to emergency room was a surreal. Some of you know, a few years ago, I, my heart rate dropped to 35, and uh, I rushed to uh, UT Southern Western Medical Center emergency room. And there, they did a, a simple blood test, and they told me to wait. And uh, I've been waiting for more than five minutes. I said, hey, nothing is, must be not, you know, not that bad. And maybe I was questioning slowly about the... Uh, my, my, my wife, Jamie, who is a RN, her medical assessment, maybe she, you know, she didn't know much about the, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, four people came and they put me on the bed and then took me to the special elevator without stop to ninth floor for the heart catheterization. That was uh, surreal. Whenever death is near us, life becomes uh, surreal. Surreal crisis. That's what David and his men are going through at effect at the time. And that surreal crisis is what we are going through in our pandemic right now. 
among the many articles I read, I like the one article uh, in the Wired magazine. It's done by uh, their science journalist, guy named Matt Simon. And then let me quote uh, some of uh, his uh, observation about the surreal pandemic we're going through. He said, this is a surreal. You said to yourself, maybe over and over again. You heard your friends and family say, it's just surreal. Whenever, whether uh, maybe it was when you stand in line in the grocery store, neatly arranged six feet from your fellow shoppers, maybe it was when you visited your grandparents in nursing home and that you cannot talk to them directly but only on the phone, and it was when you see the weekly job claims in U.S., which is consistently over 1.5 million instead of a usual 200,000. Maybe when you realize that toilet paper doesn't grow on the trees, after all, you feel this is surreal. And media, we call this surreal all the time, marked by intense irrational reality of a dream. Surreal is usually what we see in the art, like uh, Dali's paintings, Kafka's writing, but not in daily life. Surreal part comes from comes when you are thrown into the situation that you've never been in before, and it's extremely disorienting. Right now, many parents, patterns that we know and love have been obliterated. We can go to a happy hour. We can get a, uh, we can get a lunch or dinner date with our friends. We can plan our annual trip as if there is a no future. We can plan for the future. Because in the age of a coronavirus, we don't know what we'll be doing in six months. We're stuck in the new kind of everlasting present. And everything seems completely otherworldly. And it would help us if we have some authoritative voices telling us what we should be doing to keep ourselves, our family safe. But we don't have any leadership in this pandemic. In the surreal vacuum of a leadership, we feel aimless and wondering. By the way, I find our choices for next president very surreal. Yes, to be honest. Is it Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris? Are they really great, you know, candidate? Only, I mean, of course, some of you feel that are better than the other, but in normal election, I don't think these people are the really great candidates at all. Making matter all the stranger, we've been forced inside by enemy we cannot see. The virus is a microscopic menace that doesn't interface with the reality that we experience. If we didn't have the wonders of a modern science, we wouldn't even know it existed. Part of this surreal situation is that this coronavirus is invisible. Yet this virus is a global and every individual has to fight it all day long. So their article ends with this recommendation. 
psychologists say to combat our aimlessness, we need a continuity. And luckily, that's one of the few things you can easily create for yourself right now. Physical activity is a is a critical. If you may, if you want, if we manage to keep some of our old habits, especially those that we like the most, in my case, is a yoga classes, then we are less disoriented. So, keep on your daily habit. That makes you less surreal and then make you more grounded. As my yoga teacher said, feel your feet, feel your feet. Cultivate a sense of a groundness of a reality. Remember to feel your feet, everyone. Feel your feet. That's how the article ends. For me, I'm trying to feel my faith because of my ground of existence is God. According to Jesus, God is, al God is almighty, maker of heavens and earth, yet he is our Father. So for me, daily breath, our daily devotion, and prayer, and then walking are the three routines of my daily life. Now, life is a surreal. And I want us to really get a grip on that aspect of life. Sooner or later, you will realize your life is a surreal. Is it better to recognize the sobering truth about life before it hit us? Now let's find out what happened to the surreal crisis of David. Let me read chapter 29, verse 3 to 5. The commanders of the Philistines ask, What about these Hebrews? Akish replies, Is this not David, who was an officer of a king Saul of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year. And from the day he left Saul and until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the man back, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking hands of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, surprise of all surprises took place when David and his men arrived at Athens. Here we see three surprised people. First, Philistine generals were surprised to see David and his band of brothers. Immediately, they protested to King Achish. Are you serious, king? Are you in the right mind? Why in the world do we have these Hebrews and their giant slayer, David, here with us? Do you really think we need them? Don't you realize that we gathered everyone in Philistine and we outnumber Saul and Israelite? You're making an unnecessary and very dangerous mistake. Your risk is greater than reward. Unless you send these Hebrews away, I'm not going to fight for you anymore. Right now, I'm so mad at you, king. You know, first of all, the Philistine commanders were angry at Akish. The Hebrew expression here usually, actually almost always, except today, refers to anger of a superior toward the inferior or somebody lower. For instance, this expression was used when Pharaoh was angry toward his servant. 
or when Moses was angry with the Israelite, or Naaman was angry at Elisha when Elisha commanded him to take a bath seven times in the Jordan River for to healing of his leprosy, or later Elisha with the Joash. Today's anger was a reversed anger of an inferior to the superior, as the commanders were upset with their king. So this surprising anger of a, 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 a commanders must also be surprising to Akish. That's the second surprised person in this story. What king would like to provoke his commanders before critical battle? He didn't invite the day before Philistines in you know, a victory and their own good. So Achish tried to convince them, convince the commanders in verse 3 that is this not David who was in office of Saul, king of Israel? He's been already with me for over a year and from the day he left Saul until now, I found no fault in him. The Philistine king said, David has been faithful and he already became a traitor to his people. So guys, he's okay. But the generals would not budge. In the end, Akish realized that his leadership was at stake and had to cancel his order to David. Thus, David received a new order, which is go back to Ziklag as soon as possible. Verse 10 said, Get up early along with your master servant who has come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. David is a third and final surprise person in this story. Now, guess who was the most surprised among three? The commanders, King Achish, or David? It must be David, because he never expected Philistine commanders' complaint would save him and his men from their predicament. And that's the sovereign, second sovereign truth of today's story. God saved David by surprise saviors. By surprise, unexpected saviors, God saved David. This surprise savior is called the Philistine generals. Really, this truth about God's salvation is a stranger than any fiction. David must be shouting silently in his heart his awe and praise to God when he heard that his service was no longer required. He must be praising God for his mercy and wisdom. Mercy because he saved David from his own scheme now backfired. And wisdom to save David through totally unexpected source. Now speaking of a strange and surprising Savior, there is someone who is a much stranger and more surprising Savior than Philistine commanders and to David. Who is that? That is a Jesus Christ. Today we need to recognize the strangeness of our Christian gospel and the faith claim. A secular historian named Tom Holland, in his book Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, he noted this. He said, None in Greco-Roman world ever imagined that a tortured, disfigured, failed mission, uh, revolutionary on the cross could be the savior and then transformer of the world. Let me repeat that. No one in Greco-Roman world ever imagined that torture, disfigured, failed revolutionary on the cross 
could save, could be savior and transformer of the world. Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, also observed this in his classic work, The Crucified God, just how shameful and gruesome the pagan world view the claims of this crucified Messiah. Quote, to the humanism of antiquity, the crucified Christ and the veneration of him was an embarrassment. Crucifixion as a punishment of escaped slaves or the rebels against the Roman Empire was regarded as the most degrading kind of a punishment. Thus, Roman humanism always felt the religion of a cross to be unesthetic, unrespectable, and perverse. End of the quote. Now, there were actually some uh, uh, Roman writers, Roman you know, thinkers, that asked the Senate to remove the word crucifixion in the, any kind of a penalty clause for the Roman citizen. That's how Romans thought despicable about crucifixion. It is that difficult for us, the modern Christians, removed far from the social historical reality of ancient world to grasp how shocking such a belief was. We must grasp the proclamation of a crucified Christ was about as far from the proper piety as one could get in Roman world. The cross of Christ was the most irreligious and impious aspect of a Christian gospel and distinctiveness of a Christianity in the ancient world. And we must really do so. We must recognize that in our own pluralistic society. Proclamation of a crucified Christ is the still most shocking aspect of the gospel we proclaim. There is a great American, actually world-renowned, patristic scholar named Robert Wilkin. Robert Wilkin, in his book, the pagan, uh, uh, the, in his book, the, the Christians as a Roman saw them, great book, he said this, even as late as the early 4th century, pagan critics still view the Christian belief in the crucified Christ with a disgust and disdain. Over 300 years, Romans had a difficulty to accept the Christian gospel because of a shame and the scandal that associated with the crucifixion. By the way, do you know what made the strangeness of a cross new normal or normal in the early 4th century in Roman Empire? It was a conversion of Emperor Constantine who decreed Milan added to make a Christianity a legal religion in 311. When emperor finally bowed down before the crucified, that's when everybody began to accept shameful cross as a sign of God's salvation. And we see this aspect of a strangeness, this very, very offensive shame in the cross, in the writings and confessions of Paul. If you look at the Paul's, you know, saying the Romans 1.16, Paul said this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and to the Gentile. You know, speaking about crucified Savior, Paul recognized it's a shameful to some Christian. 
That's why Paul said, he is not ashamed of the gospel of a crucified Christ. Once again, many Romans, when they hear about the Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin, they probably reply, what did you just say? What did God do to save me? And again, let's look at the first Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 to 25. This is a this, this gives a full magnitude of this shame. Paul said, Where is a wise man? Where is a teacher of the law? Where is a philosopher of this age? Has not God made a foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its, its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a science, and Greeks who look for wisdom. But we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jew and foolishness to Gentile, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is a wider than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is a stronger than human strength. Verse 23, Paul said, The crucified Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and the foolishness to Gentile. The Greek word for the stumbling block is a scandal. And then word for the foolishness is a moron. Scandalous and a moronic. Do you know Christians are scandalous morons? Scandalous morons. Have you been treated like a moron? Welcome to my world. That's what you're supposed to be. Welcome to the world of Paul and early Christians. By the way, there's some real Christian morons. So I'm not saying that act like morons, okay? People can treat you like morons, but that doesn't mean you act like morons. The, the Christian morons I'm talking about is those Christians I heard. My mom is in South Korea, so I checked their news. And their late news is that they have a resurgency of a of COVID-19, it is mostly coming from churches. Those are Christians get together in close, you know, a space and praising God without mask and spreading the virus and killing their own family and others. These are the moronic Christians. Don't be like a bad moron Christians. Now, let me quote the last one about, uh, uh, about the strangeness of our Christian faith. Today, I want to call all of us to recognize our strangeness of our faith. Ron Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, is a world-renowned theologian, especially the main theologian of the Anglican Church. He said this, To do theology is, in some ways, to be taken back to the moment of a bewilderment about the newness or distinctiveness of, or the strangeness of a being in this new Christian framework. Let me repeat that. To do theology, or to be a good Christian thinker, is going back to the moment of a bewilderment about the newness, distinctiveness, and strangeness of crucified God. That's what he's talking about. So brothers and sisters, before we feel confident about the cross of Christ, we must recognize the strangeness of a cross. Before we praise God's wisdom, we must praise God's willingness to be foolish. 
Before we thank God for his strength, we must really thank God for his weakness to save us. Certainly, this is something that a lot of Christians kind of domesticated. And we need to really recognize. As David was stunned by God's way of saving him through Philistine commanders, let us recover the scandalous strangeness and the radical weirdness of the gospel of a crucified Savior. Now, how do you think David responded when the king actually said, your service is no longer needed. Go, home, you know, go back to where you know, Zeke left. We might expect that David would welcome this providentially provided way of escape from this, his impossible dilemma and quickly left the scene. Not so fast. There is a final surprise. This is our third point. Let me read verse 6. So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I've been, I would be pleased to have you serve, me, serve with me in the army. From the day that you came to me until today, I found no fault in you. But the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? Asked David. What have, I, what have you found against your servant from the day that I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Akish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into the battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servant who have come with you, and leave the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning, go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to the Jezreel. Now, when Achish changed his mind about David fighting alongside the Philistine army, and then Achish canceled his commission to, for David to be ahead of his bodyguard, David did not readily consent to king's new command. Instead, he complained. He actually complained repeatedly, three times. Look at the verse 8. What have I done? What have you found against me from the day that, I'm, that I came till now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemy of the, my Lord? You know, David almost... Uh, David sounded almost, you know, uh, bitter. He was uh, protesting as if the great injustice was done to him as innocent. Of course, David is acting here. You know, one co commentator called David, this David, cunning rascal, cunning rascal. He said that, that David is a cunning rascal. In fact, David is so cunning at this point that it is difficult for us to see what he's up to. You know, David was milking the, his facade of innocence. Definitely David is a politician. Not in the good sense of the word. He's a politician. No doubt about that. And now, the, now we have to ask this question. Why in the world the biblical narrator gives us long details here? Was it really necessary? He could have simply said, in effect, Philistine commanders... When they saw David, they did not trust him and asked their king to, King Achish to send him back to Ziklag, and David went home. 
That could be simple enough. Why did the narrator give us a long windy story? Pay attention. The narrator of this story wants us to see the last sobering truth in David's cunning charade. That is a switched honor. Switched honor. Today, we are talking about three points. Sovereign, I mean, surreal crisis, surprise salvation, or surprise savior, and third thing is a switched honor. Everyone in this story is a switched. Saul should have done what Achish is doing to David today. Saul should have recognized David's innocence and faithfulness to him. And instead of hunting David, he should have honored David. And he should have used David as a head of his bodyguard. And Achish. Achish should be doing what Saul is trying to do to, with, with David. Achish should have reconsidered David's double face and, and, and devilish scheme. So instead of trusting David, Achish should have tortured David and trusted him. And David. David was a truly insidious, not innocent. When he called Achish, when David called Achish, my Lord King, did you know that same term? That was the same term he repeatedly called, addressed King Saul in the past. David was not loyal to Achish. He's a liar. You know, when Achish told David that, uh, you have been as pleasing in my eyes as the angels of God. You know, I laughed. I actually laughed. And I talked to my imaginary in Akish that, Akish, you should read a Bible. Because in the Bible, God has many kinds of angels, including the angel of death who killed all the firstborn Egypt. David is not an angel, of a good angel. David is an angel of death to you, you gullible king. You know, somebody called today's story Hebrew slapstick comedy. Hebrew slapstick comedy. I want you to know there is a more than Jewish humor here. Notice here. Look at it. Three times. Three times. If you three times, King Akish announced David's innocence. Look at the verse 3 and 6 and 9. I have found no fault in him. And verse 6, You have been honest. I found nothing wrong in you. And verse 9, You are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Does this three-time testimony of Akish about David's innocence remind you of a similar testimony of a summon about Another innocent person that we know very well. Do you know what I'm talking about? Three times in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and Lee showed that one. Pilate announced Jesus innocent. Verse 4, Pilate said, I found no guilty in this man. And later, verse 14 and 15, I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And verse 22, I found in him no guilt deserving the death. Now, 
Pilate, of course, was right. There was no guilt in Jesus, none whatsoever. He never did anything deserving of death. In fact, Jesus never did any evil thing. The irony, uh, the irony is that the Pilate spoke more truly than he knew. Indeed, it seems that he announced Jesus' innocence largely because he did not understand. Had he truly understood the claims of Jesus and taken him ser- take them seriously, he may well have given a different verdict. Yet in the remarkable providence of God, Pontius Pilate's testimony to Jesus stands. It is one of the great paradoxes of history that in hours before Jesus' death, the truth was proclaimed by the unrighteous pagan governor that nothing deserved of death has been done by him. It is quite remarkable to discover that once again, the course of Jesus' life found the, we find the significant foreshadowing in the experience of his ancestor David. As a time for David to receive his kingdom approach. By the way, we are in the chapter 29. And the very, we have a couple chapters before the end of the book. And then starting with the chapter, you know, I mean, after that, David became a king. David was now pronounced innocent three times by Philistine king Achish. Had Achish truly understood David, he would have given him a different verdict. Yet in the remarkable providence of God, Achish's testimony to David stands. Now the irony is this, the difference is this. Achish, Achish spoke truth more profoundly than he could have ever known. And this is a conclusion of today's message. Just as David received the verdict of innocence that he didn't deserve, Jesus received the verdict of guilt that he did not deceive. Just like a David, let me repeat that. Just as a David received the verdict of innocence that he doesn't deserve, Jesus received the verdict of guilt that he didn't, des- des- he didn't deserve. Just like a David was recognized innocent and guilt without merit, listen to me, we are also recognized innocent and good without merit. Today's story is not about David's lucky break. It is ultimately about our own lucky break. Difference between David and us is this. David's judge, Achish, did not know about David. But our true judge, God, knows us. Yet all-knowing, almighty God announced us innocent and good through his crucified son. Early Christians call, our early Christians call this great exchange. God took our sin and guilt and then gave us in return his love and salvation and life. That's the truth stranger than any fiction in this world. The sovereign truth of all is that God saved you and me through his crucified son. The gospel is a truth stranger than all the fictions. And the gospel is the truth that's stronger than any other powers in this world. Dear brothers and sisters, let us remember who we are 
and how we become who we are by what of God's grace. Let's pray.